Hello, and welcome to the next episode, as opposed to the previous episode of the Unsouthern podcast. Besides playing with your concepts of time in this podcast, I will be dipping back into what appears to be the archives from my perspective. I'm, I'm still playing catch up um, on my on the actual publish published dates of my posts. Last week, I, I broke sequence and addressed the anti-Asian issues that the South confronts. Um, since it was a it was a timely topic and it was something I had just written about um, last week in my in my three blog posts on the Unsouthern blog, uh, I felt that it was important to make the podcast just as timely or relatively just as timely. Um, so we'll be going back uh, into the earlier blog post that I haven't uh, broadcasted on the podcast. And um, where we left off was sort of an awkward place. I had actually in the week of uh, March 3rd, March 5th, um, I had uh, written a couple of blog posts, which I've already done podcasts for, regarding the deference that we give to women in the, in the form of chivalry and the deference we give to older people um, in the form of honoring the elderly. And I've sort of poked some holes in, in both the idea of chivalry and deference to the to the um, aged component of the population. And all of that was uh, actually building to uh, a conclusion in my third post on the blog that I made that particular week when the when the blog posts were actually published. But uh, I interrupted myself in the sequence of the podcast. So I'll be doubling back to that today. And we're also going to see if we can cover <clears throat> the next week's posts while we're at it. Because I don't like the idea of these things no longer really being fresh in my mind when I do the podcast on them. So I, I, I want to sort of start doing these closer to the time of the blog post. Uh, so I can capture all the all the ideas that are floating around in my head at the time that I'm that I'm writing. So uh, this may be a bit of a of a quick ride through my thoughts on these on these things. Fortunately, the next week's blog posts uh, were about uh, were, were centered on again on women's issues and on my connection to those to those issues um, individually. But so without further ado, let's go to the blog post from March 5th, which was called Life on the Farm and was sort of tying together my post on chivalry and the elderly. Life on the Farm. All animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others. That's a quote from George Orwell's Animal Farm. <clears throat> As a lifelong Southerner, I've been inundated with implicit and explicit lectures on the sanctity of femininity and the veneration of the elderly. By virtue of their biology and life experiences, women and seniors in the South and beyond are afforded baked-in courtesies. <clears throat> women are given free admission and beverages on ladies' nights at social venues. 
between early bird deals and 55 plus menus, our elders can get the same food for a value price at dining establishments. Strangers offer their seats freely in public accommodations for both older people and for women. <clears throat> Excuse me. Parents caution their kids and their uncouth spouses not to curse and act unruly about around these these groups. Uh, every, everywhere, there is a bubble of concern that shields women and seniors from stress, strain, and duress. To be sure, this bubble has a much smaller radius than it did a generation or two ago. The old courtesies have begun to fade as we adjust to a world that is less formal, less regimented, and less performative in its kindness. But the bubble still exists and boasts a fierce core of supporters. Those supporters represent tradition and decency. <clears throat> and in case that wasn't clear in the actual blog post, I meant that with my tongue firmly halfway in my cheek. I couldn't speak that way. You wouldn't be able to understand me, but that's where I meant to have it positioned. <clears throat> and by most accounts, these supporters are conservative. Dun, dun, dun. If you know me, you know that conservative is not, not my favorite word. But by definition, to be conservative is to believe that the way things are is the way thing that they should continue to be. To, ad to continue to adhere to codes of chivalry and respect for elders is emblematic of core conservative values. And to the extent that conservatism embraces these values of kindness and consideration, I think it's a great thing. If you read my other posts a little too quickly, the prior posts, you may be surprised to read such an endorsement, but I promise it's true. The essence of chivalry is kind regard of others. It's the, you know, the Knight's Code from the Middle Ages is the origin of chivalry. Because women have occupied a rarefied social status for the better part of the past few hundred years in Western society, chivalry has fixed its steady gaze of regard on them. Because the elderly are seen as both our, our collective parentage and our collective future as time moves forward, we venerate them as well. The only thing I ask is that we find reasons to honor and regard the other people with whom we share our world, because the reasons are there. In other words, let's honor and regard everybody for their own individual contributions, circumstances, issues, difficulties, and achievements even. <clears throat> honor young people because they have fertile imaginations and boundless enthusiasm. Honor people of color because of their valuable perspectives and their patience and grace while living in a society that was not built for them, a society that often mocks them and, and thwarts their efforts at success. Honor men for meeting the demands of a quick-changing society and navigating confusing messages about gender roles and expectations. Honor gay and transgender individuals who must scale an impossible mountain of misunderstanding about who they are and what they want from the world. Then circle back and honor women and the elderly again because they must deal with people who opt for the anti-chivalric approach and try to take advantage of them because of their perceived weaknesses. I don't mean anti-chivalry the way I was being anti-chivalry. I mean people who say women and in particular or and also the elderly 
or whatever group that other people offer deference to regarding them as weak and then saying, hmm, let's see how we can we can twist that around to to uh, to our advantage and use that weakness. <clears throat> so honor all people. I don't I don't think it's a big ask. The irony I have been skirting here, the punchline I have been withholding all week, the week of these posts where I post about chivalry and post about honoring the elderly. The punchline I have been withholding is that the staunchest conservatives, the ones who save a special dose of venom for those who espouse progressive values of social justice, are playing the same game as those they loathe. What is there to say about a social order that puts women at the front of every line and gives financial incentives to seniors strictly on the basis of a demographic identifier? I'd call it affirmative action. And Mr. Amir agrees. I'd call it an utter disregard of merit in lieu of an unearned handout. Ladies night, 55 plus menus, handouts, affirmative action, socialism. Okay, our, our, our producer, Mr. Amir, has come in to actively offer his thoughts on this. Besides brushing against the microphone, Mr. Amir, what, what more do you have to say? Yeah, that's what I thought. Of course, he would come in the middle of my, like, my, my point of the past three blog posts. Show stealer. Show off. Anyway. So you take these these handouts, you take these these things that you that you do in as preferential treatment, you dress those things up and call it tradition, and you're golden. But if others extend that empathy and goodwill to groups of people you deem unworthy, it's radical left nonsense. To be sure, there are nuances of this discussion that I have not explored, but I do think it is helpful to expose the false narrative that kindness and regard is the exclusive domain of backward-looking or forward-looking perspectives on society. Instead, common human regard is a bedrock of most people's at least stated belief systems. But to paraphrase George Orwell, some people are more human than others, and that's why common human regard is often not as common as it could be. So that was the point I was building to on the post about chivalry and older older people. There's there's a degree of hypocrisy there. Um, we're supposed to honor these people because of their unique perspectives and or circumstances, but that becomes politically correct nonsense when we talk about it in regard to marginalized groups that um, conservatives tend to not care about or not really agree agree with existing as if that were a thing. I mean, people people exist. I had this uh, had this discussion on social media at least halfway. It was more of a of a of a parting shot on my part, but you know you you know you can't disagree with people existing. They they just do. So I think we should honor the people that are out there. They exist, and they ha and there's good there to be seen in those people and all people. So that was uh, the post "Life on the Farm." The following week, I uh, embarked on a on a series of posts, understanding that it was at that point that it was um, Women's History Month, and 
um, at the same time, I finally took the dive and watched the documentary that the New York Times uh, produced on Britney Spears. And it sort of launched a week-long rumination on women's position in society and sort of how I link up with that and why, why, why it's a thing for me. So the first of those three posts from that week are uh, not a girl, not yet a human. The post on Britney Spears. And we're leading off with a quote from, from Britney Spears' brother from the documentary. The women in this family are very strong-minded and have their own opinion, and they want to do what they want to do. And as much as I admired that as a, as a guy, being like one of two guys in the entire family, it kind of sucks, man. That's Brian Spears, brother of Britney Spears, responding to questions about his sister's conservatorship. There were a number of jaw-dropping moments in Framing Britney Spears, the latest installment in the New York Times documentary series. For me, the above interview snippet stood out to me for its fig leaf of political correctness, where he said, I admire that as a guy, inadequately covering naked chauvinism. The very idea of a young woman having an opinion just so exhausting for the menfolk. After exploring chivalry and the differential treatment of women in the South last week, I watched the documentary, the documentary this past weekend. The renewed interest in Spears centers on her unique legal situation. Brittany has remained in a financial and personal conservatorship for well over a decade, managed primarily by her father, Jamie Spears. That's that other guy in the entire family of five that Brian was feeling so overwhelmed by, a three, a, a three to two advantage there. This meaning that this means that the conservatorship means that Brittany, who is a high-functioning 39-year-old woman, can't make many independent financial or personal uh, independent financial or personal decisions. This set of circumstances, uh, to understate, is problematic. Reflecting on her background, though, it's not easy. It's easy not to be surprised. <clears throat> Lest we forget, Brittany is a Southern gal, born in Mississippi, raised in Louisiana. She might even qualify as an iteration of the unsouthern ethos. Her accent and demeanor easily betray her background, but her high-gloss music videos and polished pop princess presentation make it easy to forget again. Sorry for the alliteration there. And unlike her Texas neighbor, Beyonce, who is only three months older, she has never attempted any meaningful injection of her heritage into her music. She's played, the, she's played the glittery Hollywood role, albeit with an increasing amount of irony as her career has progressed, without breaking character on stage or on record. In other words, Britney the pop star has always been straight-faced Britney the pop star. You know, it only takes a little bit of behind the scenes to see how down home and country and whatever else she is, but the presentation, her forward-facing presentation in her in her. Um, in her musical and entertainment product is always very glam, very princessy. So no, she, you can't uh, really credit her with tapping into her, her Southern heritage for any of her art. <clears throat> being a woman from the South does not mean being subjugated. It does, however, often mean having to fight the assumption that you're going to do what your daddy wants. 
Showbiz fathers with Southern backgrounds don't exactly have a sterling track record of letting go and letting their daughters shine. See Joseph Jackson and Matthew Knowles. It takes deliberate poise and self-awareness for women to navigate the imposed expectations of both their actual fathers and a, per- a paternalistic culture in general. And this is far from a s- Southern-only phenomenon. In the narrative spun by the, if, if the narrative spun by the documentary is to be believed, Brittany fought the good fight in this regard. The media coverage started to swallow her whole in 2002, progressing over the course of years, at first examining her body and her sexuality, then questioning her mental health and her worth as a mother. Every detail of her life was dissected and consumed as another pop culture nugget. At first she tolerated, then objected, then railed against these intrusions. When her railing became uncomfortable to watch, she was declared incompetent and her father swooped in from nowhere and took control of her entire life via the conservatorship. It's a classic dramatic story arc. Drive someone to the brink of insanity, then blame them for their condition and express relief when they are relieved of their independence. I recall being drawn into that narrative at the time. I did not want Brittany to become another victim of paralyzing superstardom. Any outcome that did not involve her demise was a good one for me, which is, I tend to have a convoluted way of expressing stuff, but what I meant to say was, I just didn't want her to die. <laughs> you know, at the time I was, I was just like, you know, I was still reeling from um, the people we lost in the nineties and the early two thousands. And um, I just, I just, you know, and I wasn't the biggest Britney Spears fan in the world, but as a, as someone who, had seen her grow up to some degree and watched her, um, her success. I really did, you know, was rooting for her to come through this. And at the time it seemed like that might be the bet, the conservatorship, the, her getting help and not having to, to deal with these decisions on her own seemed like it could have been the best solution at the time. So it is probable that Brittany needed intervention during the sometimes scary events of 2007 and 2008. The case the documentary makes is that the constant, unyielding, unforgiving gaze of the media and the public made this a predictable and even an inevitable outcome. Embedded in most of the conversation and gossip around Britney Spears during that time was a sense of of disapproval with how she presented herself to the world. The scorn was by no means limited to Southerners. Americans in general struggle with the girl-woman-Madonna-whore dichotomies. It is possible, though, that Britney leveraged her southernness to juxtapose those supposed opposite states in a volatile way. Southern women are often groomed to, to drift effortless, effortlessly from sweet to sensual, and the idea of young Britney playing with that kind of fire may have been too much for too many. The snowballing resentment from the sexy Catholic schoolgirl character of the Baby One More Time video may have indeed culminated in the conservatorship. That's one heck of a dramatic story arc with a 10-year payoff, but it it is not difficult to to connect those dots. And for the most part, we played into the story, acknowledging Brittany's guilt for her along the way and then accepting her penance by way of ceding her life to her father. However, it wasn't Brittany who was going mad. It was us for ogling her nonstop for a decade until she nearly broke. So I think that sort of speaks for itself. The next installment of this is um, a further meditation on on women uh, 
entertainers in the South, and it's titled Who Run the World and the South. Of course, from from that's from the Beyonce song, in case you're not familiar with her body of work. So March is Women's History Month, and Monday was International Women's Day. Now, that that Monday when I had made the post about uh, about Brittany. It was not my plan to celebrate women in this space during this time, but with chivalry being the hot-button topic that it is to me, and with my viewing of the Britney Spears doc last weekend, the blog has taken on a theme of gender issues of its own accord. The presence and influence of Southern women is undeniable in all aspects of American life, and nowhere has their influence been so fully realized as in popular music. I don't have any gut punch social message to, to deliver this time around, just a lot of individual talking points to support this assertion. It might not be obvious that Southern women hold such an outsized role in pop music. For instance, when Billboard used the occasion of the 60th anniversary of the Hot 100 to rank the top 60 female artists of all time in 2018, only a couple of names jump out as Southern icons. Brenda Lee and Faith Hill are among the very few, but there's a lot going on under the surface. First, country music. Country music is one of the cornerstones of rock and folk music, which means that everyone from Janis Joplin to Joan Jett to Wilson Phillips have the musical stylings of the South and the Southern women who helped shape that sound to thank for how their music sounds. Not to mention the legends such as Loretta Lynn and Reba McIntyre, who remained powerhouses while never overtly extending their reach into pop music. So in other words, there's been lots of uh, iconic country performers who helped build the sound that was amplified in the form of pop and rock music that came came after the the country music. Uh, Black music. Black, black music traditions are the other cornerstone, besides country, of rock music and the precursor of just about every type of popular music that has existed in the last two centuries in the U.S. Whether you are discussing ragtime or jazz or blues or reggae or hip-hop or dance, it's all pretty much based in black music. Country music itself is a blend of blues and various folk musics, and the roots of black music are in the South. Again, sort of the, these individual points I'm making are sort of to build the case of what uh, what women have brought to the table in terms of being in terms of making popular music what it is today. Um, the next the next point beyond country music and black music, closet southerners. <clears throat> Although it may be more biogra- biographically correct to say that Dionne Warwick and Whitney Houston are from New Jersey and that Diana Ross is from Detroit. Many of the most influential Black American female singers are only a generation removed from the South. Others, like Tina Turner and Aretha Franklin, who were born in ten- both born both born in Tennessee, achieved such transcendence that their Southern background is not always acknowledged. Yes, I am familiar with the song "Nutbush City Limits." I'm just not sure everyone else is. Britney Spears, as discussed in the last post, also falls in this category of a closet Southerner. She's from the South, but, you know, to look at their uh, artistic output, look at her artistic output, you wouldn't necessarily, it wouldn't necessarily jump out at you. And then there are superstars with a Southern pass in their back pockets. Speaking of transcendence, Janet Jackson and Beyonce 
two members of the pop and R&B firmament, in case you don't know who they are, have registered firm acknowledgments of their Southern roots via their more earthy alter egos, Demita Joe for Janet and Sasha Fierce for Beyonce. Demita Joe is actually Janet's middle name, or names, I'm not sure how that goes. Um, and she created a whole album, the one whose launch was ruined by the blacklisting fall on the Super Bowl incident in 2004, Demita Joe. She, she created a whole album around that identity. Her parents were born in Arkansas and Alabama. I know, I know no one ever thinks of Janet Jackson as a Southern girl, but the roots are pretty close. Beyonce has always shown Houston hometown pride, and with the Lemonade Project, she explored her Southern roots more explicitly with sonic textures and stunning visual treatments. If you haven't seen uh, the Lemonade, and I don't know, I don't know anyone who hasn't seen it, but if you have not seen Lemonade, you owe it to yourself. It's a great, great visual piece. Um, and while I'm handing out endorsements, Daddy Lessons off of the uh, Lemonade album is uh, is my recommended uh, track. It's a jaw dropper if you haven't heard it. It's, it's Beyonce does blues and country and it's entirely unexpected if you haven't heard it. And then finally, adopted Southerners. Linda Ronstadt, Taylor Swift, and Anne Murray are among the non-native women who have inhabited, inhabited the Southern musical sphere and have sometimes become transplants in Nashville and elsewhere in the South. And finally, Dolly freaking Parton. Dolly has had a seismic impact of po on popular music and culture. I will save you the tired recitations of how she has made the world a better place, but yeah, Dolly freaking Parton. But I'm sure I didn't need to convince you, dear reader, that Southern women and Southern women at heart are pretty darn influential in the music biz. Just make sure you spread the word. And for all of my friends, you can click your stopwatch now. It took me two weeks and two days, which is how long I was into my blog at that point, to hold out mentioning my girl Janet in the new blog. I always have to throw Janet in. It took, it took a couple of weeks, but I finally couldn't hold out any longer and mentioned her. Um, so yes, that post was really just about, you know, giving credit where credit is due with uh, um, a shout out to Southern women and their influence on popular music. And the last post of the week was taking control of daddy issues. This is something that um, was a little more introspective and it, I think it, and it sort of established a pattern that I'm, I'm, I'm starting to embrace in my blog where I talk externally for the first part of the week and then I close out by bringing it home and talking about how it relates to me personally. So this final post was called Taking Control of Daddy Issues and the lead post is from Janet. Uh, open the floodgates on Janet. This is a story about control, my control, control of what I say and control of what I do and this time I'm going to do it my way. That's the opening of Janet Jackson's 1986 album Control. In 1986, the year that Janet Jackson became my role model, she provided a template for breaking free from a domineering father in the dramatic nine-minute control video. Be strong, be firm, and be excellent. That was her message. For a timid 13-year-old kid, Janet's message and her soft-spoken delivery of it helped to engender a devotion from me that has lasted 35 years. Rereading the post of the last couple of weeks, I noticed a subtle recurring motif. What about the Britney Spears documentary compelled me to devote 
an entire entry to it. Why do I care so much about how women are treated in the South? What one song did I link to when discussing Southern music? It was Daddy Lessons. So, so what's really going on here? Well, as it happens, I have daddy issues. My father has loomed as an influential figure in my life. I've tried not to be like him even more than I've tried not to be Southern. The overlap between the two should go without saying. The issue of the treatment of women resonates with me because there were mistakes I saw my father make with my mother. I see Jamie Spears yank Brittany into a conservatorship, and on some level, I think of the amount of control my father tried to exert on my life. Even years after his passing, I default to driving to Nashville using Briley Parkway instead of directly through downtown because he insisted that I use that route when visiting him. My father had wonderful qualities, and he passed to me a love for knowledge and discourse. Our relationship, though, was fraught with disconnects on worldview, on morality, on politics, and most importantly, on character. At no point could you convince my father that, that he didn't have all the correct answers and all the correct feelings for everyone in his life and in the world. His answers were absolute. His feelings centered on control. I'd never thought about the resonance of the Control album for me as a function of my relationship with my father, but I have written about my daddy issues before. There was one post in my um, MMON blog about that as well, and it was more related to um, the Donald Trump issue. I have called my dad a bully and compared his MO to that of our most recent ex-president. To some who knew him, this depiction may seem uncharitable at best and slanderous at worst but it is and will continue to be the way I see the relationship. There's a lot to be said here. There really is. Um, but instead of going on and on about that, I'll just continue with the remainder of the blog. My advocacy for social equality and the, the value of personhood along with my frequent detachment from all things Southern, the, these tent poles have gone up, at least in part, in response to my father's way of looking at things. This post is fair warning for those of you who, who believe in honoring one's parents and speaking well of the, of the departed. I refuse to gloss over my difficult relationship with my father. I assure you his presence will continue to, continue to loom in these posts. And I mean, I've already within the past week gone back to the well and talked about things relating to him this past week. Um, and in a way, this is great because he always wanted me to write about him. He always said to say, you should write a book about me if, you, if you're going to be a writer. So, you know, wish granted. <laughs> The irony and the justification for this uncompromising position is that my father was the same way, same way that I am, determined to speak his piece in the face of headwinds. Like I said, I did learn a few things from him, but as with being Southern, some of them I learned in the negative. How not to be is also a valuable lesson. So I do appreciate the blog forum, in many ways, it's a great form of therapy. And there's, you know, in my prior blog, which, which I just realized it lasted almost exactly 10 years or has lasted almost exactly 10 years. Uh, I came up on the Facebook memory of where I actually created the blog within, within the past week. 
and it was it had been literally 10 years so i'm, I'm i don't know if i have this 10 year alarm on my <laughs> mental like mental uh clock and then i just you know and i realized it's time to reset it every 10 years uh, but i thought that was that was interesting and over the course of those 10 years in, at the mmm mm on blog i know i've mentioned my father a number of times and i think it's worth noting that i started the blog So yeah, I was about to say right after he passed, but he actually passed in July of 2011. So I, so so really, he was still alive when I started the blog, and passed shortly after. Um, Mr. Amir is back with us, my production assistant, who is squandering his his uh, pending promotion by continuing to interrupt and jump up on the table. <laughs> How's it going, Mr. Amir? You have anything to say to the people? Go ahead, say something. Okay, there you heard it, straight from the assistant, from the production assistant's mouth. You can go now. He's he's not very happy with me at the moment. Um, so, and he finds the microphone very intriguing. So those are the sounds. Those are the sounds that you hear right now. <laughs> At any rate, maybe what he's trying to tell me is I should end this episode and stop going on and on about my father. So at this point, I'm not sure what you can hear because he is directly over the microphone at this point. Um, so I may have to re-record this part of the segment as you may be listening to his digestion as opposed to me trying to wrap up this piece. I appreciate you joining me <laughs> for this segment, um, for this continuing to catch up with the blog post podcast. Uh, I'm still working through the bugs of how to present these uh, blog posts in the form of a podcast. And just I'm just trying to truck along for right now, make sure I keep the production going. Uh, but I, I will be working through these technical issues and these pacing issues as I go along. And if you are listening to this in sequence, I hope you will continue to bear with me as we work on making this a better and better experience. So thank you, and we'll see you next time.